Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. There are so many important, even crucial players on the stage of history who get written out of our books because they, in some way, don't fit the desired storyline. One such personage was an incredibly talented, brilliant, tireless worker for civil rights, social justice, and peace called Bayard Rustin. Hopefully you've heard about Bayard before, but if you haven't, it is likely a result of the fact that he was gay. Today, that's hardly an obstacle, but back in the course of Bayard Rustin's lifetime and throughout his amazing activism, homosexuality was not only controversial, it was illegal and widely feared. Still, Bayard's extraordinary abilities made him a force for tremendous good on so many occasions. He not only worked with Martin Luther King Jr., but is credited with being the person who coached and trained Martin Luther King in nonviolent resistance. And Bayard was probably the single most important person in organizing the 1963 March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, where Dr. King gave his I Have a Dream speech. Bayard worked with groups like the Fellowship of Reconciliation, the War Resisters League, and the American Friends Service Committee, and many others, to transform and improve our world. So he well deserves the new, very readable, and powerful biography called Bayard Rustin, The Invisible Activist. And today's Spirit in Action interview is with one of the three co-authors of the book, Jacqueline Houtman. We'll get into her specific qualifications for this book shortly, but right now, let's go to Madison, Wisconsin, by phone, to speak with her. Jacqueline, thank you so much for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Thanks for having me, Mark. I want to start with who Bayard Rustin is, because I'm imagining he was pretty invisible to a lot of people. He died in 1987, and that overlaps with a number of our listeners' lives, but they probably still didn't run into him. But in 2013, he received the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Tell me about how it came along almost 20 years after he died. Well, Walter and several of his, Walter Nagel is one of the other authors of the book, and he was Bayard's partner for 10 years, the last 10 years of Bayard's life. After Bayard's death, he and several other people who knew Bayard and had worked with him 
decided that it was time for Bayard to get the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Many of the other civil rights activists had already received the Medal of Freedom, but Bayard had not. So there was a letter-writing campaign that had to do with Bayard's associates in various peace and civil rights organizations. And finally, just prior to the 50th anniversary of the March on Washington, Walter got a call from the White House asking him to accept the Medal of Freedom in Bayard's behalf, posthumously. So in November, he went to the White House, sat next to Tam O'Shaughnessy. Tam O'Shaughnessy was the surviving partner of Sally Ride, the astronaut. And Sally Ride was also being awarded posthumously the Medal of Freedom. This was the first time in the 50-year history of the medal that the Medal of Freedom had been awarded posthumously to the same-sex partners of the awardees. So that was a pretty big deal. And it is amazing. I think it's probably because he was gay that Bayard Rustin did not get recognized earlier. He was really crucial to so many of the important steps in civil rights and even anti-war stuff and so on. Is that a fair supposition? Is there documentation for that? Not that I know of, but Bayard was criticized throughout his life, not only for his sexual orientation, but for his position as a war resistor. He went beyond being a conscientious objector. He actually refused to work at a civilian public service camp, and he went to prison for two years for that. So he was seen as anti-American because he was a war resistor in World War II. He also, for a short time, was a member of the Young Communist League. This was when he first arrived in Harlem. He and Josh White together were interested in what the Young Communist League was doing at the time, which was working for racial justice and for integration of the military. It wasn't until World War II started and the Young Communist League kind of got away from that and started to be more interested in supporting the Soviet Union, and that's when he quit. But it's in his record. He was followed by the FBI from then till the end of his life. There's something like 10,000 pages of FBI documents on him. So he sort of had these three things working against him, his sexual orientation, his position as a war resistor, and his early dalliance with communism. And they sort of followed him for the rest of his life. My understanding is that he basically grew up around Westchester, Pennsylvania. And you have a kind of a surprising little connection with <laughs> through Westchester. You want to mention that? Well, uh, Westchester is the county seat of Chester County, Pennsylvania. And my husband and I were married in a Quaker meeting house in Chester County. So we had to go to Westchester to get our marriage lists, our Quaker marriage lists. So you're documented in the same place that probably his birth and other things are documented. How cool is that? It's very cool. But you didn't know about him really or barely knew about him before you got involved with this book. Mention a little bit about how that came about. Well, I, I knew a little bit about him. You know, he's very well respected among Quaker circles. And I knew that he was a gay African-American civil rights worker. When they sent me the manuscript, on every page, there seemed to be something amazing that he had done. And I ha had not realized what an amazingly talented and accomplished man he was until I started working on the book. And again, I think Michael G. Long was the person leading off Walter Nagel, having been Bayard's partner for the last 10 years of his life, knew firsthand details that I, I'm sure were invaluable and in which probably he helped motivate other people to document this incredible man that so few of us know about in any depth. And then you came in. Because this book is targeted not at the 50-something crowd, but because it's targeted at younger people. Right. 
the idea for the book first came to Mike Long while he was working on his book of Bayard's letters called I Must Resist, which came out in 2012. Through his work on I Must Resist, he had gotten to know Walter. And Walter, since Bayard's death, has been working very hard to keep Bayard's message alive, to let people know about Bayard. He is the archivist of the estate, so he has a lot of the documents there, some of which he's donated to the Library of Congress. So they had worked together. And so when Michaels decided to write a children's book, he asked for Walter's help. And Walter was so much help that they put his name on the book as well. So there was a manuscript by these two men. It was submitted to Quaker Press. Quaker Press was impressed with the content, but it didn't really have the voice of a children's book. I am a children's author. I write about science for young people, and I also have a novel called The Reinvention of Edison Thomas. That novel is in the, the Quaker Books catalog, and I also gave a talk about it at an annual meeting in Iowa of Quakers. And so this is how Quaker Press knew about me and about my writing for children. So they asked me if I could take this manuscript and turn it into something that was more appropriate and engaging for a younger audience. And so that's how I got my name on the book. And when we say younger audience, we're not talking eight-year-olds. No. My aim was for fifth graders. I'm finding that there is a lot of history that had to be put into the book, mostly through sidebars, that makes it probably more appropriate for sixth, seventh grade and up, because it's just very dense with all the historical context, which is needed to kind of understand what Bayard's life was all about. We're also finding that adults are reading this book because it's quite readable and short and gets to the point, whereas all of the biographies of Bayard for adults are longer, some quite scholarly and not quite engaging. This is sort of a quick way for adults to find out what Bayard was all about. You know, if I had my way, I'd also have you write a version of this book. It would be a novel because his life is certainly novel worthy. And just hearing it in that way, I think would be so captivating. I mean, really, he stood in the midst of so many important movements from the 40s up through, well, the 80s when he died. So I really think it would lend itself well to that. The storytelling would be so powerful. I mean, it's powerful as it is. And I really appreciated the sidebars. I mean, it's not that I didn't know about what communism was, Although kids today, are they going to know much about communism? I don't really think so. Or the Jobs and Freedom March or, I mean, they've, they certainly probably have heard of the I Have a Dream. But, you know, the right to vote, that was something that's ancient history from their point of view. So this is really a history book. Is there some sense that it could be used in history classes? Oh, sure. I don't see why it couldn't be used in American history classes or in African-American history classes or civil rights history classes. So let's flesh out who Bayard Rustin is. And I want to mention for those who are listening and have no idea how to spell Bayard, because it's not a common name these days. If you just looked at it, you might be tempted to say Bayard, B-A-Y-A-R-D. Where does this name come from? Is it an African-American name or is it somewhere else that it comes from? We believe that he was named after a Quaker poet from Pennsylvania named Bayard Taylor. Uh, Bayard's middle name is Taylor. So that's a pretty strong clue that that's where his name comes from. Wow, really good clue, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and let's flesh out a little bit about his birth, which, I mean, the woman that one would assume was his mother that raised him was actually his grandmother because he's actually a child of one of his sisters, which really back in the 1940s and 50s, 
the word bastard had a special stigma to it. I think that in a lot of ways, communist, gay, he's born by his sister out of wedlock. All of those questions mean that he's thoroughly on the bottom rung of any ordering of our society in the 1940s. I don't think the fact that his mother wasn't married at the time of his birth really came up a lot. There were so many other things that were working against him. But he was raised by his grandmother, who was probably the most important influence on his early life. Her name was Julia Davis Weston, and she was raised in a Quaker household in Westchester, Pennsylvania. She went to a Quaker school. She even went to nursing school, which was very unusual for black people at the time. So the household she grew up in was the home of a Quaker congressman where her mother worked as a maid. She married her husband, Jennifer, and then started going to the AME church, but she kept those Quaker values that she grew up with, and she instilled those on her children. I think there were eight of her children, and her, her oldest was Florence, and Florence gave birth to Bayard when she was a teenager. Bayard's biological father, Archie Hopkins, was really not in the picture, so his grandparents, Julie and Jennifer, raised him as their own son. But when he was a child, he was sort of teased by one of his classmates about his mother not really being his mother, Ma, Julia. And so he asked her about it, and she told him the truth. She told him that Florence, who he thought of as his sister, was in actuality his mother. But she said, we're one big family, and we're all mothers for everybody. And that was something that Byrd held with him all his life, that it was sort of the unity of the human family and the Quaker value of that of God and everyone, of everyone being equal and a part of the same human family, was really one of the biggest influences on his actions and his beliefs. So even though she is very strongly Quaker identified, he was raised, as originally at least, in Bethel African Methodist Episcopal Church, which is an all-black church, not integrated. Again, we're talking the, what, the 19-teens, 1920s, that when he's attending this. Does he actually go to a Quaker church, or is it all his grandmother's purveying of that sense of the religion? I think it's really all from Julia. He did eventually identify as a Quaker while he was at Cheney State College. And when he was living in New York, he joined the what was at the time New York monthly meeting. I believe it's called 15th Street meeting now. So he did formally become a Quaker later on in his life. But throughout his life, he held those values that his grandmother had taught him. And certainly he worked for American Friends Service Committee and other groups, so he, he got a lot of the uh, effect of it there. But still, one of the benefits of being part of an AME church is that he got to sing. And this guy sounds like Superman to me, really. <laughs> <laughs> He's got the good looks. He's got the sports ability in school. He's a whiz on everything. And he sings like an angel. I mean, is there some trait that he didn't have that <laughs> we should have added to it? I don't know. You know, I mean, when he was in school, he excelled academically. He excelled in public speaking, in drama, in singing. There are actually recordings of his voice that you can purchase. He has a beautiful tenor voice, and I listened to CDs of his singing as I was working on the book. It was wonderful. He excelled in football and tennis and track and field, he actually set a state record at the Penn Relays and the Mile Relay. He was incredibly charming and charismatic. He was a wonderful speaker. He sang on Broadway with Paul Robeson. He cut a record while he was living in Harlem with Columbia Records for Josh White and the Carolinians. He filled in for singers at the Apollo Theater in Harlem. 
<laughs> and that's just, you know, in the first 25 years of his life. And people can watch a fair amount of this information, hear his voice, I think, in Brother Outsider, the PBS film about him as well, right? Yes, it played on PBS in the POV series. It's called Brother Outsider, The Life of Bayard Rustin. It wasn't made for PBS, but it was shown on their POV series. And folks, if you're interested in that, I have a link to it on YouTube. Just come to NordenSpiritRadio.org and you can watch that in addition to what you're going to learn about him today. So let's keep going about Bayard. So he's this incredible, charismatic, talented individual. Somewhere he gets connected with civil rights work. Now he's African-American, so naturally he's going to end up experiencing some things about racism, although that didn't happen in his early life. I mean, he really didn't latch on to the seriousness or the crucial motivation to do this until a little bit later. Yeah. And that's something that I work with when I receive the manuscript on really beefing up the whole childhood aspect of Bayard. Because when you're writing for young people, they want to know what life was like for him as a kid. I didn't have a lot of resources for that, but Walter sent me a two-hour audio tape of Bayard talking about his youth, which was incredibly helpful. In his very early life, he felt very safe. Julia was an early member of the NAACP, and there would often be people staying at their house associated with the NAACP, and she would hear them talking about discrimination and segregation and even lynching. But Bayard really never experienced a lot of that stuff until he got to high school. He went to a segregated elementary school, but didn't really have any experiences that were negative as far as race is concerned. But once he was in the integrated high school, Westchester High School, which is now called Henderson High, he had friends at school who were white. His best friend was a white young man named John Cessna. But outside of school, he couldn't associate with his white friends. They couldn't go to the same places to eat. They had to sit in separate places in the theater. He couldn't even use any of the bathrooms in town. He had to go home to use the bathroom. And his very first arrest was at the theater there in Westchester, the Warner Theater in Westchester, when he sat in the white section of the theater, and that was his very first arrest. And so we're talking about the 1920s at this point. Yeah, late 20s, I think. Mm -hmm. Also, when he was in high school and when he was traveling with the sports teams, he wasn't allowed to stay in the same hotels as his white teammates. And so he and I think there were two other African-American youths on that team. They sort of held a bit of a protest about that. So he was starting to show his activist side in high school, but it wasn't really till he got to New York that he got really involved in civil rights issues, first with the Young Communist League when they were working against segregation. But then later on, after he quit the Young Communist League, he met with A. Philip Randolph, who was the founder of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, first mostly African-American union in the U.S., highly respected man in the civil rights movement. Uh, Everyone called him Mr. Randolph. And so he got involved with A. Philip Randolph in what was called the March on Washington movement. This was back in the early 40s, 41, I believe. And their intent was to have a march on Washington. This was back during Franklin Roosevelt's administration. And the idea of thousands of African-Americans marching on Washington was pretty frightening to Franklin Roosevelt. And they were marching to desegregate the defense industry. And with this threat of a march on Washington, Roosevelt issued an executive order integrating the defense industry. And so they called that off. 
Then Bayard got involved in the Fellowship of Reconciliation, which was a pacifist organization. A.J. Musty was the leader of the FOR at the time, and he and A. Philip Randolph were really Bayard's mentors throughout his life. Now, the point at which he begins identifying or the world ends up knowing that he's gay, is that clearly identified in his life? I didn't feel like there was an exact date for it. Well, Bayard was, for the time, extremely open about his sexual orientation. Most of his friends and co-workers knew that he was gay. He was not completely out, as you could say. A.J. Mustine knew that Bayard was gay and that he was having relationships with men. And he really discouraged Bayard from doing that because he thought it threatened Bayard's work with the Fellowship of Reconciliation. It wasn't until 1953. In 1953, Bayard was in Pasadena speaking on behalf of the American Friends Service Committee. And he was arrested under a morals charge, under the charge of lewd vagrancy for basically some sexual activity that he was caught with. And that's when things became public. It was part of the police record. It was in the newspaper. And A.J. Musty asked for his resignation from the Fellowship of Reconciliation. And a lot of his colleagues in the fellowship also separated themselves from him. And it took a while for him to recover from that and get back to work in civil rights and human rights. Now, we should note, I don't know if people can really put this into proper perspective. Bayard Rustin is a pioneer in so many ways. So in 1953, when he got arrested, essentially for a morals charge, as they would call it at the time, there is no Internet. So it's not automatic that everyone knows it. And police sharing, it's not by computer. So it really takes much more work to have these things come up than otherwise. So he could kind of lay low and not have people know everything about what's going on about him. Did the AFSC, did his superiors in the AFSC know that he was gay? Because, again, we're talking 1950s. There's so much crazy stuff going on at that time and people being blacklisted left and right for anything. And being gay, I would imagine, would be something you'd be blacklisted for, not to mention if you're a civil rights advocate. Definitely. There was an executive order that made it not only legal to fire someone for being gay, but required them to fire gay people who were working for the federal government. People would sometimes use his arrest in 1953 as a way to discredit his work and discredit the work of the civil rights movement. Adam Clayton Powell did it in 1960, and Strom Thurmond, just weeks before the March on Washington, brought up his police record and his FBI record on the Senate floor trying to discredit him in the movement. And because of this, that's why the book is entitled By Addressed in the Invisible Activist, a number of cases he chose to stay in the background, and sometimes it was other people firing him, like you said, what A.J. Musty did. He stood in the second row so that he wouldn't be a lightning rod for charges against so many of the actions that he was involved with. But, you know, it's not like that was the only time he ever went to jail or prison. I, I think he had a frequent flyer pass to jail. <laughs> so what, what was the first time he actually went to jail? Was it for the military resistance or what, did he end up before that, you know, like for going to the theater and sitting in the white section? Well, he was arrested in Westchester at the Warner Theater for sitting in the white section. In the early 40s, he was working with the Fellowship of Reconciliation, traveling around the country, educating people about pacifism and about nonviolent direct action. In 1942, he was traveling on a bus and decided to sit in the white section of the bus many years before 
Rosa Parks was 1955. Okay, so this was before he was arrested for refusing to report for his military physical. This is while he was teaching youth about nonviolent direct action. And he was arrested. And I describe in the book the way he actually used what he had been teaching as far as nonviolent direct action. He let the police kick him and call him names and try to elicit some kind of response from him, but he refused to respond. And as a result of that, he was released. So that was when he sort of realized the power of nonviolence and how had he fought back, it would not have ended well. But by allowing himself to be punched and kicked in front of all of these onlookers on the bus, by using nonviolence, Bayard convinced the onlookers and even the police themselves that the violence that was being perpetrated against him was wrong. And had he fought back, they would have felt justified in beating him. But since he didn't fight back, there was some sympathy on the part of the onlookers and they decided to release him. So he didn't serve any time, but that's when he was really convinced of the power of nonviolence. This is a section that I often read. And it was after this, in 1943, Bayard received a letter asking him to report for his physical. Now, he had previously been granted CO status, but in those three years between the time he was granted CO status and the time he received this letter asking him to report, he had changed his views, and he decided that war was wrong, and that even serving in a civilian public service camp would be supporting the war effort. So rather than even serving as a CO, he served two years in federal prison. And where did he get the idea that nonviolent direct action was the way to go? I mean, I know Gandhi was active from what the Actually, it's even uh, the aughts, the 19 aughts up through 1947 when he was killed, that he's certainly one of the voices of nonviolence. And Martin Luther King, we think of as one of the advocates of nonviolent direct action here. But actually, I, I don't know if it's fair to say that, but I think Bayard Rustin was probably a mentor for Martin Luther King. Oh, I think that's very fair to say. Okay. Well, well, tell me about that connection. Well, A.J. Musty, who was the head of the Fellowship of Reconciliation, the pacifist group that Bayard joined, he was a big fan of Gandhi. And when Bayard traveled around the country teaching people about nonviolent direct action, he used a few books of people who had worked with Gandhi. There were people who had worked with Gandhi who were working with the Fellowship of Reconciliation one of whom was Richard Gregg, who was a lawyer who had spent seven months in Gandhi's ashram. And he had written a book called The Power of Nonviolence. And that book talks about the psychology of nonviolence and why it works and how if a protester is attacked and fights back, that gives the attacker justification for using more violence. But if a protester is attacked and does not fight back, that will throw the attacker off balance and will confuse the attacker and sort of help the attacker see that, well, this is making me look really bad. <laughs> so Richard Gregg's book, The Power of Nonviolence, is one of the books that they used in teaching about nonviolent direct action. There was another person who worked with Gandhi in India, and his name was Krishnalal Sridharani. And he wrote a book called War Without Violence, which spoke specifically about the things that Gandhi was doing in India in his nonviolent direct actions which Gandhi called Satyagraha, which translates as insistence on the truth. And this was more a book about the specific tactics that Gandhi was using. And 
Bayard and his co-workers at the Fellowship of Reconciliation used these books on the philosophy and the tactics of direct action to teach the young people how to use nonviolent direct action to achieve social justice. And he's maybe 25 or something at this time in his 20s. Yeah, he wasn't very old at all. 42. No, he was 30 in his early 30s. And Martin Luther King had learned about Gandhi in graduate school, but really when Bayard went down to Montgomery during the bus boycott, he realized that Martin Luther King didn't really have a strong grasp of the nonviolent philosophy or the specific tactics of nonviolent direct action. And so Bayard really schooled him on nonviolent direct action and helped King to see that having guns in his home was inappropriate, that having armed guards around his house was not a useful thing, and really taught him that nonviolent direct action was not just a series of tactics to achieve a goal, but was sort of a lifestyle. And again, for Bayard Rustin, this comes out of some of these people that he's met along the way, A.J. Musty and the other people involved with nonviolent direct action. But still, he's got this voice of his grandmother, who raised as his mother, and how she, I think it was implicit in the way that she worked. Were there particular instances in his youth where he learned nonviolence? I mean, I'm just, I, I don't know that I actually recall any from the book. And again, folks, the book is Bayard Rustin, The Invisible Activist. And we're speaking with Jacqueline Houtman. She is one of three co-authors of the book. Walter Nagel is one of the others. And Michael G. Long, who's got a long list of books he's been involved in. Altogether, there's many views into the life of Bayard Rustin that are included in this book. But I'm really wondering if that one is in there, Jacqueline. I can't think of a specific incident but I know that Julia always schooled her children, and she saw Bayard as her son, in standing up for social justice, yet doing it nonviolently. She said it was too tiresome to hate. And she encouraged her children to solve their differences nonviolently. When he was in fifth grade, he and a bunch of his white friends did a Chinese-American laundry owner with very racist chant, which I know, but I'm not going to repeat. And Julia found out about that and made Bayard work for two weeks without pay for this laundry owner. And it was not just punishment for what he had done, but it was also a way for him to understand that this Chinese-American person was just as much a part of the human family as he was. It's a great way to learn it. (laughs) You know, I had something that I did when I was in eighth grade that I still don't know where it came from because I don't think I was schooled in nonviolent direct action. Eighth grade, I'm walking with my friend Frank around the school at lunchtime. We finish lunch. We're walking outside the school. It's spring. We come around the corner, and there's a couple guys there waiting to grab Frank and beat him up. And one of them grabs him and pins him, and the other one starts punching on Frank. And at that point, I've got a choice. Now, I was raised Catholic. I wasn't Quaker until basically college time. But my first reaction probably should have been to get in there and, you know, give as good as we are getting and all of that kind of thing. But that wasn't my inclination. Uh, What I did was I grabbed the guy who was holding him and I said, you shouldn't be doing that. And then he turns, I I lifted him off, put uh, put him away because I'm pretty strong. And he turns and he punches me in the face. And I said, and you shouldn't have done that either because now you're <laughs> going to get in more trouble. That that was stupid. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And 
I didn't defend myself again. So, you know, if I had known Bayard, I could have been inspired by him, but I didn't know him at that time. And I, my friend and I walked away without a single other blow being taken. And, you know, I went to the vice principal's office and they did get in trouble and all that. But I think they were so surprised that I didn't fight back and that I wasn't nasty toward them or anything like that. I said, no, you shouldn't do that. You're going to get in trouble. That's a bad idea. It really does change the dynamics of a situation when you do that without fear. And uh, so much violence is really preemptive fear. By not fighting back, too, that sort of puts you in the moral high ground as well and makes the person who's attacking you sort of feel like it's confusing to them and surprising and they don't feel justified in doing you any more harm if you're not fighting back because that makes them the bad guy. Yeah. With virtually everyone except drunk people, I don't think it necessarily works on. There are certain people, psychotic, I think that using force is important, not violence, but force. I imagine in terms of restraint and all that kind of thing. But still, to be acting out of love, and that's a big thing that a lot of people don't get. Gandhi didn't just have these great tactics and which Bayard Rustin and A.J. Musty, other folks, you know, Dr. Martin Luther King, that they didn't just use the tactics. It was entering in the love of the other individual that becomes, it's, it's often missed as an important part of the whole process. Yeah, the shared humanity is a huge part of nonviolence. Seeing your attacker or the person with whom you are having conflict as another human being and realizing that you're both human beings, not othering each other. You're all part of one human family. We're speaking with Jacqueline Haltman today. She is one of the three co-authors of a book, Bayard Rustin, The Invisible Activist. And it's a book worth checking out. And I think if we learned more of our history by this kind of book, we'd be so much better off. But that's why you tune in to listen to Spirit in Action, which is Northern Spirit Radio production. We're on the web at northernspiritradio.org. And on that site, you'll find more than 10 years of our programs for free listening and download. You'll find connections to our guests. So you'll find a connection to Quaker Press and this book. You can get it from Amazon or any other place as well. But Quaker Press is the origin of this particular book. So follow the links from NorthernSpiritRadio.org. There's also comments, and you can see what other people are saying. And we'd love to have your comment because we value two-way communication. Also on that site, there's a place where you can donate, and your contributions are absolutely necessary because that is how this full-time work is funded. So click on Donate when you come to NorthernSpiritRadio.org. But even before you support our work, Please remember to support your local community radio station. They provide you a slice of news and the music you get absolutely nowhere else on the American airwaves. And it is so essential to get that alternative view, just something that the mainstream doesn't support. So start by supporting your local community radio station. Again, the book, Bayard Rustin, The Invisible Activist, Jacqueline Heltman, along with Walter Nagel, and Michael G. Long are the co-authors, and it's a new book this year. Bayard Rustin, as you've heard, there's the whole history. We're leading up to his association, really, with Martin Luther King Jr., and let's talk about that connection, how he got involved, what role he played. For a while, he was in, and then he was out, and then he's back in. Uh, Talk about that, please. Bard's relationship with Martin Luther King Jr. was complicated. (laughs) 
They first met during the, the Montgomery bus boycott. This was in late 1955 is when Rosa Parks was arrested and the boycott started. In early 1956, it was becoming clear that there was some violence seeping into this whole situation. Several people had their homes bombed. There were guns. There was word that there were guns being smuggled into the area. And Bayard Rustin, along with his mentor, A. Philip Randolph, and people from the War Resisters League, decided that they needed to do something about that. And the person that could bring nonviolence to the bus boycott was Bayard. So they sent Bayard down there. He taught people, especially King himself, the tactics and philosophy of nonviolent direct action. He did a lot of writing for King. He wrote some of King's speeches. He advised him on a lot of things. But soon the White Citizens Council, which was sort of the legal version of the Ku Klux Klan, was making trouble and also spreading word that Bayard was in town. He was an outside agitator. And this was after his arrest in Pasadena. And so there was this public record that they were afraid was going to come to light. So word has it, we, we couldn't confirm it, so we couldn't put it in the book, but we believe that Bayard was snuck out of Montgomery in the trunk of a car. And for the rest of the bus boycott, he advised King by letter and phone. He and King worked together on several other occasions. In 1960, there was a plan that Martin Luther King and Bayard were cooking up to protest at the Republican and Democratic National Conventions. Adam Clayton Powell, who was a powerful congressman from Harlem, an African-American, he didn't want those protests to happen. And so he implied that there were immoral elements in King's group, meaning Bayard, of course. And not getting a response from that, he had one of his associates call King and say that if these protests went on, that he would leak to the press that King and Bayard were having an affair. This was not true, of course, but King wanted to sort of ward off any kind of scandal in the movement and keep the focus on what they were doing and not on what he saw as an outside influence. Or the issue of King's relationship with Bayard and with Bayard's sexual orientation was used by people like Adam Clayton Powell as a way to discredit King and to discredit the work that King was doing. And so he felt it would be prudent to cut Bayard out of his inner circle, which he did, which crushed Bayard. But eventually they started to work together again, and they were working on the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. And at that time, there were some people who thought that Bayard should not be involved in organizing this march because he would be a political liability if it came out about his arrest and about his sexual orientation. But Others in the in the group, it was like the Big Six, Big Ten, there are people, heads of the NAACP, SNCC, all of the major civil rights organizations. But what they decided then was to make A. Philip Randolph the director of the march. And A. Philip Randolph turned around and made Bayard his deputy because they knew that the only person who had the organizational skills to pull this thing off was Bayard. So in addition to his singing and his athleticism and his public speaking, he was an incredible organizer. He had eight weeks to organize this March on Washington. They were projecting 100,000 people. It turned out to be 250,000 people. They had no computers. They had no fax machines. They had telephones and index cards. 
and there was 1,500 buses that had to get into Washington and out of Washington in the same day because there was going to be no place for them to stay. One thing that Bayard wanted to make sure happened was for it to be nonviolent because if there was any violence in this huge gathering of people, it would have discredited the whole thing. In organizing the march and the speakers at the march, he put King last because he knew that King was a very dynamic speaker and that he could really speak to the crowd. Now, if the march had not been nonviolent, if there had been any sort of incident or riot, King's I Have a Dream speech would never have been given or wouldn't have been given in that situation. But in truth, actually, King was not the last speaker because Bayard came on stage after King to read the demands of the march. After the march, King and Bayard worked together several times, but they started to have some disagreements about, for example, about the Vietnam War and how best to approach the goal for ending the Vietnam War. Bayard started to work more through political means rather than protest. He actually wrote a piece called From Protest to Politics. And so he and King, their relationship had their ups and downs. <laughs> It seems to me, though, if I read the situation correctly, that before his death, that Martin Luther King Jr. came closer to Bayard's view of what direction to take. I mean, the attitudes about the war, I don't think that Martin Luther King was ever particularly pro-war, but his decision to speak out and become politically active in that was more than, I think they probably separated over that issue. And then I think that he, he probably caught up a little bit, at least with Bayard. Yeah, you know, during that time, there was the whole issue of the Vietnam War. There was also the Black Power Movement was gaining momentum, and Bayard was not pleased about that. And also how to deal with poverty, which Bayard was seeing as a root of a lot of the ills of society. And so he'd made up a people's budget. But he saw that with the Civil Rights Act and with the Voting Rights Act, there was progress being made in the Johnson administration. And by being very vocal about resistance to the Vietnam War, he was afraid that he would distance himself from the people who were supporting the civil rights legislation that was going on. He was afraid that by speaking out, against the Vietnam War, he would alienate those very people who were working so hard to bring civil rights legislation to, to fruition, pass, yeah. Yes, yes, to pass this all the civil all the great gains that were happening in civil rights legislation. You know, it really does strike me, and I've seen this throughout my life, I've heard people having these debates. Do we take on all of these issues at once, or do we focus on one, or do we become absolutist to push the envelope, all of these things? It seems to me that Bayard Rustin, strong personality, self-assured person for good reasons, that he sometimes went to the purest end, or he was so clear of his truth that he didn't make it easy for other people to be in coalition with him. He didn't bend easily. I think early in his life that was true, but later on he saw the need for compromise and political savvy. But still, even when he was prevented for whatever reason from working for civil rights, like whether it was because of his arrest or some other reason, he would turn to some other human rights violation that he was seeing in the world. He would look at refugee crises, immigration, labor. All of these things were connected to him because it was discrimination, any kind of discrimination, whether it was because of race or immigrant status or labor status or 
even later in his life, sexual orientation, any kind of discrimination was wrong. It didn't matter who was being discriminated against. So if he was not able to make progress on one front, he would just turn around and work toward social justice in some other arena. And you mentioned some of this about the refugees and so on. At the point where things aren't working well with Martin Luther King Jr., I think that's the point when he goes overseas and he, he's traveling around different countries. Is that the right correct point? I mean, do I have this the timeline right? Anyway, he's traveling in other countries and he's working about peace and justice issues there. Right. He was working against colonialism in Africa as well. He was working against nuclear testing. Uh, he did a big protest in the Sahara when France was going to set off a nuclear bomb in Algeria, in the Sahara Desert. He marched in London and Aldermaston in the United Kingdom against nuclear proliferation. And that's actually where the peace sign was first seen, was at this Aldermaston demonstration in the UK. And it has been said that it was Bayard who brought the peace sign over the pond to the United States and introduced it to American uh, protesters. It's also been said that he coined the phrase, speak truth to power. I've been wondering where that phrase came from. I'm used to it from Quaker circles, and I'm very used to it now in wider circles. It continues much wider than certainly Quaker, the Quaker little hidden little pocket of the American landscape. But yeah, he did so much. And I really think that maybe now that gay rights are more and more widely accepted, you know, where it's the law of the land, the Supreme Court's ruled, you know, marriage and all that, maybe the history books can be rewritten to include him in, that they, the invisible ink that they used for his name before can be changed and made visible and shared with the world. And certainly having a book like By Your Dressed in the Invisible Activist helps us as a step in that direction. Did you and the other authors of the book have any particular agenda in terms of trying to get his name out there? Well, I have to say that Walter has been working tirelessly to bring Bayard's name more to the public's attention, not only in accepting the Presidential Medal of Freedom on Bayard's behalf, but he worked with the makers of the documentary film Brother Outsider. He is working with several other organizations. He travels on speaking tours all over the country talking about Bayard. He was instrumental in establishing the Bayard Rustin Fund, which is a foundation to bring Bayard's work to people's attention. Interestingly, while Bayard and Walter were together from 1977 to 1987, of course they couldn't marry. The first same-sex marriage license wasn't issued until 2004. But they did want to seek some legal means to protect Walter in the inevitable death of Bayard. There was a huge age difference. So what they did was they were one of the first couples, same-sex couples that I know of, that actually went through an, a legal adoption procedure. And so Bayard legally adopted Walter as his son so that Walter could have legal protections, such as being able to visit him in the hospital and inheritance of the archive, for example. So, folks, you really do want to take a look at Bayard Reston, the Invisible Activist, Jacqueline Houtman, Walter Nagel, Michael G. Long are the co-authors. 
and each of those individuals are worth checking out on their own. Jacqueline, you've written other things. You mentioned one of your writings, and you've written a lot. But first of all, let's start with the fact that you've actually got your PhD in medical microbiology and immunology, exactly what a children's author should have. <laughs> <laughs> but your book that people, I think, probably would be very interested in checking out is The Reinvention of Edison Thomas, and that is in Thomas Edison. Why is backwards in that name? Actually, that came from a friend of mine who you may know named Doug Kirk. Doug did that. <laughs> well, whenever whenever Doug calls us on the phone, our caller ID tells us that Kirk Douglas is calling. Oh. <laughs> and that's where I got the idea for the reversal. Now, all the members of the Thomas clan have that sort of quirk. Edison Thomas's father's name is Jefferson Thomas, Jeff Thomas. He's got an Aunt Aquinas. He's got an Uncle Sawyer. So that's kind of where that came from. <laughs> and Michael Long has written so many books. And so if you look up Michael G. Long, you're going to find out books like Gay is Good, Beyond Home Plate, Martin Luther King, Jr., Homosexuality and the Early Gay Rights Movement, I Must Resist, Marshalling Justice, First Class Citizenship, and Christian Peace and Nonviolence. There's a whole bunch of books, and I think I have to get Mike Long on this program. He certainly has a very accomplished number of books. His newest book, actually, is about Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers. I would also like to mention that I do have a website, and on that website, I have collected a whole bunch of resources that have to do with Bayard Rustin and his work, including some of the original documents that he wrote or that he used in his work. There are also some links to guides and things like that. So I encourage especially teachers to have a look at it because I'm really trying to collect some useful resources all in this one place on my website. That's jheltman.com. And Houtman is H-O-U-T-M-A-N. And Jacqueline Houtman is one of the three co-authors, again, of Bayard Rustin, The Invisible Activist. I'll have links on nerdspiritradio.org to the book and to Jacqueline. And there's so many resources. I can't imagine that there's any history teacher who shouldn't read this book to have a good view of this time. It really brings up so much that has been glossed over, ignored. And I think for any young audience, it's going to fix a good view on the history of this last century so that they'll be able to really understand. You know, I actually, there was one more thing that I wanted to comment on. It's something that we can't quite get our minds around living in 2015. It's not only that there was racism. We all know about there was racism. There is racism. There was slavery before that. And we know that gay relations and transgender issues and all of that, those things are still being resolved. So we're pretty aware of those. Perhaps the frontier that Bayard Rustin Cross that we're not aware of is not only that he had relations with men, but he had interracial relationships with men, which means not only is he crossing one frontier, gays, oh no, but interracial was actually illegal for whites and blacks until, I don't know when it was, the 1960s, 70s. So the end of the 1960s, up until that point, at least in some states or in many states, interracial marriage or interracial relationships were not accepted. So I don't know that Bayard Rustin had any fear at all about crossing all of the lines of demarcation as long as they were unjust. <laughs> I would like to make the point that not only 
were rewriting about history and about biography of a man who is no longer with us, all of the issues in this book are unfortunately quite relevant today. We did a book tour and spoke at a bookstore in Baltimore shortly after the Freddie Gray case. And so not only, I think, is it is important to learn our history, the history of social justice, but to continue to fight for social justice. One of my hopes is always that by looking at history, we're going to have learned enough so that we can apply it to today in the sense of what things am I blind to today? I really don't think in the 1940s that people's minds were really open to gay rights. But see how that lived out through those ages and say, oh, we went through that. So what am I blind to today? Is it trans issues or is it immigration or who knows what it is? There's so many ways that we can learn by delving into history. And you do an excellent job of it in Biodressed and the Invisible Activist. Thank you for writing this book, for taking it under your wing there, Jacqueline, and making it a powerful statement, something that is both digestible portable. It's not not so thick that you can't carry it with you. You captured so much in the book. Is there maybe a short reading, something that you can leave us with a taste treat of Biodressin that will maybe encourage people to pick up this book and take a thorough look? Sure. When Bayard was in high school, he wrote a poem which is surprisingly prescient, and I'd like to read that. I ask of you no shining gold, I seek not epitaph or fame, no monument of stone for me, for man need never speak my name. But when my flesh doth waste away and seeds from stately trees do blow, I pray that in my fertile clay you gently let a small seed grow. That seed, I pray, be evergreen, that in my dust may always be that everlasting life and joy you manifest in that green tree. The guy just had so much talent in so many ways. and. We're all the more enriched that now we get to see more of the both of his personal side and the incredible work that he did over the course of his decades. Thank you for bringing his name and for bringing your voice to sharing his name to us. Thanks so much, Jacqueline. Oh, thank you so much. Please remember that you can track down Jacqueline Houtman and her other books, plus more info about Bayard Rustin on her website, jhoutman.com. That's J-H-O-U-T-M-A-N dot com. Thanks to Andrew Jansen for production assistance today. So, read up on a powerful role model and join us next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, 